0: Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories, with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring workday.
1: A sensational crime. An airtight alibi. We can't lay a finger on this guy. And a chain evidence bring him in Charles Bronson is a cop looking for a killer and he's running out of time go ahead take me in you can't punish me when the guilty go free no. the system is the crime I'm a mean selfish bitch. but I want a killer and what I want comes first how come, I've never heard him mention a daughter. It seldom crosses his mind that he has one. He's one angry man with someone to protect. Want to be with your father. Don't argue that. He can make a difference. You like hurting girls? I won't answer that. Girls won't have anything to do with you, but you get back at them, don't you? <coughs> I won't to listen to your filth. Hurry up! i have gotta remind you about evidence obtained under duress. It's Inadmissible, Leo. We got no evidence, and we can't hold this kid. He's our man, Captain. I'm gonna get him. Found some blood. He's lying. There was no blood on my clothes, and he knows it. Yeah. How do you pray, Warren? Guilty no, or not guilty? You're not guilty. The last thing I want to do is get involved with a cop. Well, I don't blame him. Leo, you know, I went back to the lab and I talked to the technician. And I asked him if you... Why didn't you ask me? It's not true, Lieutenant? be the evidence. You know why. We... Sooner or later. After county how many more dead? We had to be stopped. <coughs> Forget what's legal, do what's right. After all the evidence is in, he'll reach his own verdict and execute the sentence by the deadline when there is no justice. This man is the law. 10 to midnight. Charles Bronson, Lisa Eilbacher, and Andrew Stevens in a Golong Globus production of a J. Lee Thompson film. 10 to midnight.
0: To midnight. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie 10 to Midnight from 1983. The studio, Canon Films, release date March 11th, 1983, with a running time of 101 minutes. The rating R, with a budget of $4.5 million, and the box office took in $7.1 million, making it the 80th ranked movie of 1983. Roger Ebert at the time didn't give it a star rating. He just gave it a thumbs down, just like Siskel and Ebert. And here's his review. This is a scummy little sewer of a movie. A cesspool that lingers sadistically on shots of a killer terrifying and killing helpless women and then is shameless enough to end with an appeal to law and order. The people who made Ten to Midnight have every right to be ashamed of themselves, and that includes Charles Bronson, whose name on the marquee is the only reason anyone would come to see it. The movie stars Bronson as a Los Angeles police captain on the trail of a mad slasher. Now see if this plot sounds familiar. The creep is a psychopath who gets his kicks out of anonymous phone calls to women. After he warms up over the phone, he likes to crawl into their apartments, take off his clothes, and run around stark naked, carving them up with butcher knives. There are, of course, the usual shots in which horrified naked women cower in the corners of shower stalls, etc. This utter BS is par for the course in a movie so ineptly made that key scenes take place off screen. Here's an example. The daughter of Bronson's friends is murdered. Bronson and his partner, Andrew Stevens, drive to the house to break the news. They make small talk about the old neighborhood and about how smoking is bad for your health. Bronson knocks on the door of the house. He goes inside to tell the parents that their daughter is dead. Cut immediately to unmarked car again as Bronson and Stevens drive away from the house. After all of that limp buildup, the movie never shows Bronson talking to the parents. Why not? Too hard to act? And yet, it's a key experience because it directly inspires Bronson and part of the plot. Logic isn't the problem with this movie, however. A lack of humanity is. The movie lingers on the faces of screaming women. It revels in its bloodbaths. Gore spurts all over the screen. The final sequence is so disgusting that I wrote the first sentence of this review in my mind while I was watching it. The movie indicates that Charles Bronson just doesn't care anymore. And is just going through the motions for the money. I admired his strong, simple talent ones. What is he doing in a garbage disposal like this? And that's the end of Ebert's scathing review. Now, I don't agree with Ebert on this one, but that's what makes the world go around. I could still love Ebert and his opinions without being angry or triggered. I know it's a novel concept today, but I digress. Ten to Midnight was really the beginning of the canon films that would reinvent Bronson to younger audiences and turn you know, Chuck Norris into a superstar. Canon films just aren't for everyone. Personally, I love them. But I also understand the shortcomings of all those films. And as the directors of these films later said, if they had known that, they, that these somewhat cheaply made films were going to eventually live forever on cable TV and home video, they might have made them differently. But at the time, these films were made quickly and cheaply for theaters, and then quickly moved on to the next film. It was always quantity over quality, and that was definitely a canon motto. All right, let's get into the main cast. Of course, you have Charles Bronson, who plays Leo Kessler. Now, I covered the majority of Bronson's career in the Death Wish episode. The success of the first Death Wish film in 1974 really made him a star and would continue to make tough guy films for the rest of his career. Some of the films Bronson made between Death Wish and 10 to Midnight include Breakout, Hard Times, St. Ives, The White Buffalo, Death Hunt, and Death Wish 2, and many of these films also co-starred his wife, Jill Ireland. Lisa Eilbacher plays Laurie Kessler. Now, Eilbacher's career began in the early 1970s, mostly on TV shows, and then appeared in An Officer and a Gentleman in 1982 with Richard Gere and Deborah Winger. She would be best known for playing the role of Jenny Summers in the original Beverly Hills Cop with Eddie Murphy. Andrew Stevens plays Paul McCann. Stevens is the son of actress Stella Stevens and first worked with Charles Bronson in the film Death Hunt in 1981, and he's now best known for being a producer. Gene Davis plays Warren Stacy. Now, Gene's brother, Brad Davis, was an actor best known for playing Sallyfield's love interest in the film Sybil, and then later as Billy Hayes in Midnight Express. Gene Davis, interestingly enough, was best known for similar creepy roles like in 10 to Midnight, for films like Cruising with Al Pacino and Night Games. He would continue to act for years after 10 to Midnight, but this would be his most memorable role as Warren Stacy. Now, there were two other well-known actors who have small parts in the film, and that's Wilford Brimley and Kelly Preston in her film debut. She went by Kelly Paulsis at this point in her career. The director, J. Lee Thompson. Now, Charles Bronson and Thompson would make nine films together in the 1970s and 80s. Prior to Ten to Midnight, Thompson's best-known films were The Guns of Navarone with Gregory Peck, the original Cape Fear with Robert Mitchum and Gregory Peck again, another Gregory Peck film, McKenna's Gold, St. Ives with Bronson, and also White Buffalo with Bronson. Okay, let's get into the making of the film. So, the director, J. Lee Thompson, wrote a 20-page treatment called Bloody Sunday, which was the impetus behind Ten to Midnight. He then gave the treatment to producer Lance Hood, whom Thompson worked with on the Bronson film Cabo Blanco a few years earlier. Now, part of the reason the film was named Ten to Midnight instead of Bloody Sunday was that the producer, Pancho Coner had essentially sold the title of Ten to Midnight featuring Charles Bronson without a real script behind it. So when one of the studios bought into the new Charles Bronson film, they had to find an actual script for the film. So that ended up being the Bloody Sunday story, and then they just changed the title. Now this was definitely an era of when a studio would buy a film based on the strength of one main star. Bronson was definitely one of those stars in the early 1980s. Today, there are very few that have that sort of cachet. Bronson was a presence on screen you couldn't deny, especially for action stars or anti-heroes of the era. Now, at the time, there were so many high-profile cases in the news about police officers tampering or planting evidence, so the producers thought this would be a pretty interesting angle for a film along with criminals pleading insanity when they were perfectly sane when they committed their crimes. Hood figured that he'd go with the studios they used in the past for Bronson and Thompson films. However, Bronson had just signed a deal with Cannon, which was run by two Israeli businessmen who had tons of cash behind them. Now, Canon loved the idea behind the film and wanted to have it made, and they kept telling Hood that they could make the film they wanted to make from the start. But once they started filming, the budget kept shrinking, so it became a challenge to get the film finally made. But even with the smaller budget, Hood was happy with the final outcome, though it wasn't exactly what he envisioned from the start. Now, for the time, the film was actually a hard R rating because of the violence and the nudity. However, today, it's probably not quite as shocking compared to most of the crime horror films released. Canon never had a problem with this notion, especially go back and watch some of those early 80s films. Now, Gina Tomasino, who plays Karen in the film, would have landed the role of Bronson's daughter, Lori. But Charles Bronson had a rule that no actress could be 5'8 or taller to play his daughter. Now, Gina had put 5'8 on her resume, but she was actually 5'7". When Bronson finally met her in person, he noticed she wasn't as tall as what she put on her resume and said to her if he had known that, she would have got the part of Lori instead of Karen. Tomasina was famously cast in the ZZ Top music videos for the Eliminator album as one of the Eliminator girls, so the, the Legs video, Sharp Dressed Man, and Gimme All Your Lovin'. The producers thought it was going to be fairly simple to cast the part of Warren, but none of the actors they brought in could really find the essence of the role. Bobby DeCicco was the original choice, but turned down the role. And they finally picked Gene Davis. And even then, they weren't sure he was right for the Warren role. But once filming began, they knew they made the correct choice. Plus, he had no obvious issues performing nude almost half the film. The main inspiration for the Warren character was serial killer Ted Bundy. He was good looking, the victims were all women, and he never left evidence. And the name Warren was after the actor Warren Beatty. Also, the killer Richard Speck was also part of the Warren character, and much of the final scenes were similar to the Richard Speck murders. All right, let's get into the film. So it begins without credits with police detective Wheel Kessler, Charles Bronson, taking a statement from an obvious derelict.
1: <laughs> Nesta Christensen, that with two T's. Tell you exactly how I did it. With a straight-edge razor. I catch him breaking the Lord's commandments, that's what I do, I rip them with the razor. You gonna stick me in jail, huh? Huh? Not today, Nestor. We're full up today. Come back next week. Stupid flatfoot! Never tell you nothing again! No wonder you never catch nobody! Jerry, don't do that. What's new, Leo? You under something? Oh, the captain issued a statement. Didn't you get it? Come on, I could fart a better statement than that. Are we friends or not? I won't quote you directly. What? You won't quote me? You won't mention my name on the TV? And you call yourself my friend? not nice Leo. Jerry I'm not a nice person. I'm a mean, selfish son of a bitch. I know you want a story but I want to kill her and what I want comes first.
0: And that's how you start a canon Charles Bronson film. No nonsense, tough guy detective. Originally the first cut of the film didn't feature Bronson until almost 10 minutes into the film. And that just wouldn't fly for moviegoers if the whole point of seeing the film is to see this main star. So the film was re-edited to put in the office scene in the beginning. Next, we see a good-looking young guy in his 20s named Warren Stacy. That's Gene Davis. He's staring at an attractive blonde woman that is walking from an office building down the street, and she's trying to catch a ride. We then flash back to a scene, this is all in Warren's mind, where he's unzipping the same woman's dress from behind. She quickly turns around and throws coffee in his face, and this was actually the original opening scene of the movie. We then cut to Warren at his apartment, getting ready to go out. In many ways, this character of Warren is kind of a precursor to the Christian Bale character in American Psycho. After flashing back again to getting coffee thrown in his face, he finishes putting on his clothes and grabs a butterfly knife and heads out. Warren ends up at a movie theater. He's standing behind two young women at the box office. He finds out one of them is named Tina from the box office cashier girl. He buys popcorn and soda and waits for the house lights to go down. Once they are, he sits right next to Tina and her friend. So again, Warren is a good looking guy. He's clean cut, but socially inept in every way. His speech pattern and overt motives turn off every woman he comes into contact with. Tina eventually gets annoyed with Warren and shoves the popcorn away that he offered to her friend. Tina and her friend move to different seats and then Warren leaves. He goes to the theater restroom and puts on disposable rubber gloves and then leaves the bathroom through the window. We then find Warren with his VW Bug alone and naked, with the exception of the rubber gloves and the knife, and he's in a secluded wooded area. He walks up to a van, which is the same van as the woman who threw coffee at him earlier that she got into after her day at work. Warren finds the woman and her boyfriend having sex in the back of the van. Warren watches for a bit before the woman notices him watching in the back window. Quickly, Warren opens up the van's back door and stabs the man repeatedly. The blonde woman races out of the van completely naked and runs through the woods. Now, the actor who actually plays the boyfriend in this particular scene actually auditioned for the Warren role and was given this part instead. So Warren, after killing the man, decides to chase the woman. Now, keep in mind, he's totally naked too, so it's kind of a surreal scene. The woman tries to hide in the woods, but Warren, of course, finds her. She pleads for her life, but Warren methodically evaluates what he's going to do to her, and for a second you think he might spare her, but then quickly stabs her in the stomach, killing her. Warren then returns to the movie theater and climbs up the side of the building and back through the bathroom window. He flushes away the bloody gloves and returns to the movie showing. The two women he annoyed in the beginning see him once the house lights come up, and this is all part of his alibi for the murder he just committed. We then cut to the crime scene, where Leo and his captain, named Captain Malone, played by the great Wilford Brimley, are investigating. Leo also meets his new partner, named Paul McCann, that's Andrew Stevens. All three men agree that these murders, along with a few from the recent past, are likely from the same killer. Leo's initial theory is that the killer commits these murders of women out of sexual frustration. The fact that he never attempts sexual intercourse with any of the women before killing him shows that the knife is essentially a violent extension of his penis, which he obviously never uses. He gets sexual gratification from the murders and using a knife instead of another weapon is more intimate because you get to be next to your victim. Plus, Warren was always nude when committing the murders in the woods, something that Leo doesn't know yet. The nude angle is less about the sexual angle, but it's more to not leave evidence on his clothing. Warren works in an office as an equipment repairman, facing typewriters and other machinery around the office. But, as usual, he's a complete weirdo around all the women. The supervisor gets a call saying that Betty, the blind woman, has been murdered. The entire office is in shock, though Warren looks unaffected. So Leo is a jaded veteran detective, and Paul is a fairly young, idealistic go-getter who thinks he can make a difference. This is the standard cop trope, but it works for a reason, and obviously Bronson does well with this role. Leo and Paul head to Betty's parents' house to tell them of the news of the murder. Now, Leo soon realizes as they get closer to the house that Betty was friends with his daughter. Now, I couldn't imagine having to be an officer, having to break the news about someone's, you know, the murder of someone's child, let alone someone that you know already. Leo was understandably shaken after the meeting with Betty's parents. However, he still has a job to do. He and Paul decide the next stop is to interview Betty's roommate, Karen, and try to get a list of names of all the guys Betty has gone out with. Both Leo and Paul attend the funeral of Betty. Leo's daughter Lori, who is played by Lisa Eilbacher, is at the funeral, and so is Warren. We discover that Lori and Leo don't have much of a relationship since her mother died. Lori is going to school to be a nurse, and this comes from a brief conversation with her and Paul while Leo speaks to Betty's father. Warren, at the time, is eavesdropping on Leo's conversation and overhears that Betty used to keep a diary of all her dates. Warren realizes that this could incriminate him if she wrote about the incident where she threw coffee on him after he unzipped her dress at the office. Warren decides to break into Betty and Karen's apartment looking for the diary. Unfortunately, Karen arrives back from the funeral while Warren is in the apartment.
1: Tim. How are you bearing up? Oh, I'm a wreck. I can't sleep and I can't stop crying. I'm coming over to take you out. You're a darling. I just don't feel like going anywhere, though. I think I'll just get a bite to eat here and try to get some rest. Why don't you come over in a couple hours? All right. Okay? okay that's great. You're an angel. Bye.
0: as is his mo warren is fully nude while stabbing karen in the stomach while she cooks eggs in the kitchen with karen now dead warren goes back to betty's room and with the same knife attempts to open up her locked bedside table which presumably has her diary in it warren finally gets the table open and then finds a cardboard box that says my diary on it however the box is empty now one thing i should mention during the interludes with warren walking around or at his apartment He's always flashing back at past victims being killed, and this will always pop into his mind. Warren rides back to his apartment, only to have Leo and Paul waiting for him. As it turns out, Leo has Betty's diary. He reads through a few entries about her dates with a few guys, and asks Warren if he knows any of the names. Warren says that he doesn't. Leo then reads one more entry. It says, Good looking, but what a creep. Makes my skin crawl. I told him to get lost. Creep called me up again. Creep asked me to the office picnic, and I said I had a date. He said I was lying. That made me mad. I said I wouldn't go with him if he was the last man alive. And that would be an entry about Warren. Warren defends himself by saying he did not want to speak ill of the dead, but that Betty was not a nice person. She had no morals and had terrible manners. And of course, the night of Betty's murder, Warren has an alibi because he was at the movie theater and various people saw him there. Leo excuses himself to use Warren's bathroom. Paul ends up getting a call on his radio and phones in, and they find out from the captain about Karen's murder. They leave Warren's apartment and head to the crime scene. Leo believes that Warren committed the murder, or murders. They bring him in for questioning, and Leo discovers a few things in Warren's past, like how he threw a dead cat through a neighbor's window when he was a kid and quote-unquote accidentally stabbed a girl when he was 12, but unfortunately, this is circumstantial evidence, and that won't be enough because the two women from the movie theater confirmed they saw Warren the night of the murder of Betty and her boyfriend.
1: Look at him. That's the fellow you saw on your shore. Yes, of course. What was he wearing? A red jacket and jeans. Designer jeans. He looked very neat. He was repulsive. He's not asking questions. He's making charges. A when did you see him? Outside, before the movie, and then when he sat down by me, by us, and afterward, on the way out. I saw this guy before, during, and after the movie. you sure about that? Yes, I'm positive. Did you ever take her out, Warren? I drove her to work a few times. That's all. Just not your type, huh? Her boyfriend objected, so I stopped. The girls you talked to in the movie theater, were they your type? No. Thanks, kids. You can go home now. When's the last time you made it with a girl, Warren? That's not your... Last week, last month, last year. I refuse to answer. Never. You never made it with a girl because girls won't have anything to do with you, but you get back at them, don't you? Betty and Karen and God knows how many more. I won't listen to your filth. I won't listen to this, Warren. Not- Warren, do you recognize this? Leo? What's that, it Warren? Off. You ever see one of these before? What's it used for? What's the matter? Cat got your tongue? It's for jacking off, isn't it? And these pictures, you recognize the girls on the pictures, Warren? Look at them. Look at them, Warren! Look at them! Warren. Look at them. <laughs> Stop! Hey, hold it! Go home, kid. Get him out of here, no. You better quit while you're ahead. Now get him out of here. Leo, you lost your mind? You can forget about this. And what, I got to remind you about evidence obtained under duress? It's inadmissible, Leo. Right. When the law protects those maggots out there, you'd think they're an endangered species. Come on. Will you give me a break? Let's not get into that. The facts are we got no evidence and we can't hold this kid. He's got an ironclad alibi.
0: By the way, I can't do it justice, but the instrument that Leo is hilariously bringing out uh, that he found at Warren's apartment that he used for jacking off <laughs> looks just like a hairdryer and some weird latex contraption over the nozzle. <laughs> People had to be a lot more inventive back in the early 80s for their uh, gratification. Leo is positive that Warren is the killer, but without the evidence or witnesses, if he got nothing on him, and the captain knows this, Leo wants to pick Warren up for any murder or harassment of women just so they can hold him and Leo can get to work on a confession out of him. However, Paul realizes that if Warren hired a lawyer, he'd have the department and Leo up on charges for harassment. Lori shows up to the station to talk to her father, but he's busy trying to convince the captain about arresting Warren. Paul decides to go out and talk to Lori. Lori found a picture of her and Betty and other friends, and one of the guys in the picture was Warren, and Lori realized he was the same guy at Betty's funeral. She tells Paul that Betty was always creeped out by Warren, and that he was always saying how he'd get even with everyone that made fun of him. Warren has decided his next prey is Lori, since she approached him at the funeral asking if they'd met before. Warren waits outside the hospital where she interns and follows her back to the student dorms. Warren decides to use a payphone to call Lori in her dorm, which he shares with other student nurses. He kind of uses a Spanish-speaking accent and says vulgar sexual things to her in Spanish. This is similar to what he used to do with Betty. Eventually, Lori acts like the operator and hangs up. Leo and Paul visit Lori for lunch at her school cafeteria, and we see a young Kelly Preston in her film debut as one of the students named Doreen. We learn a little bit more about Lori and Leo's strained relationship, while she has a heated discussion with Paul. So while Leo is a very good detective, with many accommodations, he was not around for his wife when she was sick, and was working instead, and Laurie still resents this about him. Laurie despises that he put his job over his family. Paul, on the other hand, admires Leo and his work ethic, but Laurie wants to hear none of this. To his credit, Leo is attempting to get closer with Laurie, but he does have ulterior motives, as he has a feeling that Laurie may be in danger from Warren. Lori invites Paul to a party at her dorm, but he initially declines. That is until she remembered to tell Leo about this obscene phone call she received. Paul then decides to accept her invitation. Now, before the party, Paul installs a recording device to Lori's phone and also leaves a police band walkie-talkie to have a direct line to the police. Lori and her roommates are now freaked out and for good reason. Paul and Lori hang out for a bit at the party, but eventually leave and have dinner before going back to her place. When they return, the phone rings and it's Warren again with another obscene phone call. But this time, Lori keeps him on the line and doesn't get offended by his sexual taunts. And this infuriates him. And Paul gets it all on tape. Now, this last scene brings up an interesting take on Warren's motives. What would have happened if the women who rejected Warren initially instead accepted and or encouraged his overt passes? Would he still want to kill them? Or does he purposely act like a pervert in order to rationalize killing these women? That's the thing, we never do get this answer, but it's something to think about with the psyche of of Warren and a serial killer. Also, there are subtle hints throughout the film that Warren might be a repressed homosexual. For example, Leo did find gay magazines in his bathroom and photos of him working out next to scantily clothed men. But again, it's never actually called out overtly in the film. It's up to you to decide. Now, Leo decides to take the cassette recording of the phone call to the audio lab to compare it to the tape, to Warren's interrogation to see if the voices match. While the guy on duty in the lab looks for the interrogation tape, Leo decides to take a sample of blood they have stored in the evidence from the murders. The lab finds that the phone call and Warren's voice in the interrogation match, and a warrant is issued for Warren's arrest. After confiscating Warren's clothes, they discover that there is blood on one of his shirts, which matches one of the victims. It looks like Leo may have planted the blood. And actually, Paul has his suspicions as well. In the meantime, Warren doesn't take the news of this evidence too well.
1: Sign here. Standard bail bond agreement. What it'll cost you. All I want is out. That's what we're here for. They put you in, I get you out, Mr. Danny keeps you out. What's he looking at, Dave? Did they read you to your right to remain silent? Did you? Of course. Good boy. <clears throat> we plead not guilty and demand a jury trial. With their backlog, nobody's going to pay any attention to it. Sexy phone call. I can practically guarantee you a suspended sentence. Excuse me. I'm talking to my client. Do you mind? Well, I have something more for you to talk about. We found some blood on your client's clothing. We're going to rebook a murder one. What? See you at the arraignment. You dirty shit! He's lying, there was no blood on my clothes and he knows it! You dirty shit! He's lying, he's lying, he's lying! No!
0: No! This is exactly why Warren was always completely naked when killing his victims. There was never any trace of blood that could get on his clothes and he always wore rubber gloves. So, will this planted evidence stick? Well, there's about 30 minutes left, and there's plenty of craziness left, as you can imagine, and some very unexpected turns. And the ending? Well, if you like Charles Bronson and canon films, the ending will definitely satisfy you. And I have to give kudos to Gene Davis, who plays Warren. He definitely nails the part of a psycho killer. Plus, he had to be nude almost half the time he was on screen. This is a film that is Definitely better than a lot of the canon films, meaning uh, those that write off you know, the campier canon films will likely enjoy Ten to Midnight a bit more. And also fans of slasher films should also enjoy this film. Alright, some fun facts. Frank Sinatra Jr. was actually for, up for the part of Paul. And al Baldwin actually screen-tested for the role of Warren Stacy. So while the film didn't do especially well in the box office mostly due to Bronson fans being older and not necessarily ticket buyers, the film did very well on cable and video rentals as a younger audience that enjoyed horror and slasher films sort of picked up on this. And like most Bronson films, the international markets were quick to pick up on 10 to Midnight. Gene Davis, who was living in New York at the time, said after the film premiered on HBO, a creepy guy walked up behind him quoting the obscene phone calls from his character made in the film. You gotta love New York. What was interesting at the time, Charles Bronson is 14 years older than Wilford Brimley. But Brimley always looked like he was 20 years older than Charles Bronson. So Bronson would always have a strict diet of chicken or fish, salad with lemon juice, and a vitamin routine. He would always wake up early and punch sandbags as his workout routine. And that clean living showed because he was always in great shape and ripped, even when he got older. Gene Davis was so into his role and acting so intensely that he actually dislocated an actress's arm during the final murder scene and Massacre Sequence. Davis also wanted to break the ice with his co-stars and get the awkwardness out of the way before they began shooting by walking around the set naked. But Lisa Albacher was the only one holdout. Lisa refused to look down below. <laughs> so Davis went ahead and tied a red bow around it to draw Auerbach's attention. All right, so if you like Sasha films, and actually if you like mystery films, you may dig this. Uh, It's definitely of the times. I love the 80s. I do love Canon Films. And I love Charles Bronson. So this was a winner for me. It's also on Shout Factory if you like Blu-ray. Which means you get great bonus features. And much of the great insight you get is because I have a Shout Factory DVD. So definitely worth checking out. And I'll be back next week for yet another random movie in my DVD collection. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Batbeak. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.